I love the opening scene of Les Miserables. It has to do with a man named Jean Valjean. He's just been released from prison where he served 19 years. The first five for stealing a loaf of bread to feed his hungry family. The next 14 added because he repeatedly tried to escape. And so as Hugo begins his story, Valjean is released from prison. He makes his way to a little village in the French countryside where he meets a venerable old priest. The bishop invites him in for dinner and asks him to spend the night, which he does. But in the middle of the night, he sneaks downstairs and takes all the silverware of the house and sneaks out, trying to make a life for his own. That next morning, the priest is out in the garden. He notices the empty basket of silverware. He knows full well what's happened. So it's a surprise when we read that a knock comes on the door and three French policemen have Valjean in their hands. And the priest says, Ah, there you are, my friend. What is this? I gave you the silverware, but what about the candlesticks that I gave you? Why did you forget those? Those are at least worth 200 francs and could help you as you make your life in this new world as a free man. The policemen are incredulous. You mean what he's been telling us is true? We saw this man. He he was moving as if someone was trying to chase him. He was a man on the run. We questioned him and found the silver. We heard he spent the night with you. And I'm sure he told you, the bishop went on, that this kind old man, the bishop, me, gave him these utensils. And so it's a mistake. Let him go. The brigadier general said, so let him go? You really? Yeah, that's right. Let him go. And at the news of this, Valjean recoiled. And he said, Am I to understand that I am to be released? And the bishop came to him and he said, taking the two candlesticks off the mantle, he said, here, take these. And with these, become an honest man. This encounter with the mercy and grace of this kind old bishop forever changed Valjean's life. He was never the same. This morning, we have the beautiful privilege to turn from the pages of great literary fiction to the pages of God's Word, the Bible. It's our story. And as we encounter the mercy and the grace of God, my hope is that our lives, each one of us, would never be the same. So let's pray to that end. Our Heavenly Father, meet with us now as we open your word. As your word is opened, by your spirit open each heart that we might see your grace and like Valjean, have it take our breath away. May we forever be changed to the glory of your Son's name in whom we pray, amen. We've begun a series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's a letter that he wrote to some brothers and sisters that he knew in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. And in this book, he's reminding us of our identity and our mission in and for Christ. It's all about the cross. You can see it in the word identity. You can see it here in the word mission. 
And as we've moved through these opening three chapters, we're being taught again who we are. Who are we? We are in Christ, chapter 1. And if our identity is rooted in Him, if we have this relationship that's deep in person with Christ, we have every spiritual blessing that one could ever want through Christ. We have it all. And so our lives can overflow. This church should be a church that's overflowing with praise. Who are we? We're in Christ. Who are we? We are people who are in Christ, but we're becoming like Christ, and we're not there yet. So we're in process. And that's why he prayed for them, to know God more. And in this growing knowledge of God, to become better aware and acquainted with the hope that is ours in his calling, the riches of his glorious inheritance, that we are his treasured possession, the power of his strength, the resurrection power to give us new life. And today, we understand who we are. We are people who've been reconciled to God. We've been brought back into a relationship that we were created for through God's grace and his mercy. So here's what we understand from these 10 verses in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. That because we're saved by grace alone, there's only one person whom we can boast in. We boast in God alone. It's not about us. It's all about Jesus. We boast in God alone because verses 1 through 3 will make the case very clear. Without God's grace, we're dead. We are flatline dead. But by his grace, verses 4 to the end say, we're made alive. So open your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2. You'll find on page 827. And let's dig into this great text as we now encounter the mercy and grace of God. (coughs) Verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live, When you follow the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Paul's describing our life apart from Christ, our life before Christ. We're dead. We're dead in our transgressions and in our sins. And the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean to be dead? Well, it means that we're guilty, number one. It means we're caught red-handed like Valjean. The silverware was in his sack. There was no denying that he was a thief. Everyone knew it. Like the little kid whose hand's caught in the cookie jar, caught in the act. We are all guilty. And the Bible says all have sinned, Romans 3.23. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And Ezekiel tells us in the Old Testament that the soul who sins is the soul who will die. That because we're guilty, we're dead. We've got a death sentence over us. This word sin, what does it exactly mean? What is a sin? What does it mean to sin? What in the world are transgressions? Well, there's two word pictures. The first for sin is a target. The word for sin in the Greek language means to fall short of the mark. The mark is the bullseye. The bullseye is a life like Christ. You want to know what God's glory is like and what it means to fall short of God's glory? It means when our attitudes and our actions and our words don't measure up to Christ. And we're sinning. Transgression has the idea of this uh, don't ski out of bounds. 
sign right here. Don't cross the boundary because transgression means to step over. You're stepping over God's clear commands, thinking, well, that doesn't apply to me. I think this is a better way to go. I think it's a shortcut to my happiness and where I need to get. That's what transgression's about. And all of it has to do with you and I thinking we know best. You and I acting as if we are God, that we set the rules. And God says, no, actually, I'm God. I set the rules. And you've fallen short. You've fallen short of my glory, of my son. You stepped over my clear commands. And because of that, we're separated. We're alienated from God. Our relationship isn't the same. I mean, we know that. We know what happens when their unfaithfulness comes into a relationship, whether it's a marriage relationship or a friendship. When you feel like someone's betrayed you, there's something in that relationship that now separates you. And our rebellion against God as we sin separated us. We're now alienated from God. We don't have a friendship because we're sinners and God is holy. So dead means we're guilty. But verses 2 and 3 go on to remind us that dead doesn't just mean that we're guilty, but it means we're trapped. Yes, we're sinners, but we're trapped. We cannot stop sinning. You ever tried in your own strength to stop doing something that you know is wrong and you found yourself continually doing that? You go, why do I do that? It's because who we are by nature. That's who we are. We're trapped. We cannot stop sinning. That's why we're dead. This stuff now controls us. We're controlled by, the scriptures say, the ways of the world. We're controlled by this ruler, the king of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That's the devil himself. Not only are we controlled by these external forces, but there's internal things in my own life, the sinful cravings of my own heart, where I want to do things that aren't right, and I'm controlled by these things. I used to thought I was free to do whatever I wanted to do, and now I find the things that I'm doing now control me, and I can't break the chain. And the reason is because we're sinners. The Bible talks about when we're born... We're not born like with a clean slate. We're born into sin. It's part of the human condition. It's inherent in, this, in the human condition. And so it says this in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, it's a reference back to Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Inherent in the human condition is this disease. It's now genetic. We all have it. It's inherent in us. And that's why we're trapped. We're dead because we can't stop sinning. We're dead because we're condemned. Look at the end of verse 3. Like the rest, by nature, objects of wrath. That's all of us. We are objects of God's wrath. What is his wrath? Well, it's his intense displeasure. It's his righteous. That means it's just and it's fair. His righteous indignation, his righteous hostility, his righteous condemning of all that is contrary to his perfect holy character, to his perfect holy will. He's against it. He hates it. His wrath is poured out on it. And it says, because we're sinners who've rebelled against God and we can't stop, we don't even want to stop. We are under 
his judgment. We're condemned. Dead. Have you ever thought about what it means to be dead? It means you can't do anything for yourself. There's a guy named Jeremy Bentham. Jeremy Bentham is the father of utilitarianism. He lived in England a couple hundred years ago. When he died, he donated his whole estate to one of the university college hospitals there in London on this condition. You get all my money, but you got to preserve my body and wheel me into every board meeting that you have as a hospital. I mean, this is some dark humor going on here. That's what he said. And so this is Jeremy Bentham right here. This guy's pretty old. I forget, I forget the years, but he's like 180 years old now. And they didn't do such a good job preserving his body. And I, I hate to be gross here, but that's his real head between his feet there. His wax head is under the hat. But Bentham is rolled into every board meeting. And here's how it goes. The chairman reads off the names. He gets to Jeremy Bentham, present, and then he adds the caveat, but not voting. <laughs> of course he's not voting. How could he vote? He's dead. He can't wheel himself into this meeting. He can't utter a syllable. He can't raise a finger. There's nothing that he can do for himself or that hospital. He's dead. And the Bible says, apart from God's grace in our life, without Christ as our Savior, we are dead, incapable of ridding us of our guilt. There's nothing we can do to wash it from our hands. We're guilty. There's nothing we can do to break the chains of these things that ensnare us. We can't do it. We're incapable of doing it. We're incapable of getting ourselves to a position where we're no longer under God's judgment. There's nothing we can do to bring us back into this relationship that you and I were made for. We're completely flatline dead. The monitor of God's word hooks up to our heart, and here's the reading. Spiritual cardiac arrest. Flatline. Dead. That's the bad news of who we are apart from God's grace. And if we don't understand this, we'll never be excited about the good news. This is anthropology 101 from God's vantage point. It's not very great. Yes, we're creating his image. That's beautiful. That's amazing. But you and I are spiritually dead apart from Christ. But verse 4 begins to give us hope because the beginning words in the original language go like this, but God, but God, but God who's rich in mercy made us alive though we were dead in our sins, but God. So look at verse 4 as we turn the corner and understand that we boast in God alone because with his grace we are made alive. Verses 4 through 7. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So if dead means 
We don't have a relationship with God. There's nothing we can do to pursue that. Alive means we do have a relationship with God. We've been saved. In fact, if you look at verse 5, you understand that the whole concept here is to be alive means to be saved. And when did he do this? He did this, verse 5 says, when we were still dead in our transgressions. Wow. Wow. So that's what it means to be made alive. And the question is, what are we saved from? We're saved from the very things we've just talked about in verses 1 through 3. We're saved from our guilt. We're saved from the power of sin. We're saved from the penalty of sin, death. We're saved from all of that. So the question is, why would he do that? Why would a venerable priest extend mercy to a man that he knew stole his silver? Why would he do that? We would say, well, because he experienced God's grace. And having experienced God's grace, it was easy for him to give that grace and mercy to other people. All right, that works. Makes sense. Why would God do it? Why would God do it? The people like you and me that the Bible says have rebelled against God. We said, God, we don't care if you're God. We want to be God. We want to run our own life. And we'd like to set the rules, thank you. And we think we know better. And spit in his face and we reject him. We go our own way. Why would he extend mercy and grace and save us? Well, the text tells us why. Our text two weeks ago, reminds us that it's his plan. It's always been his plan. What is his plan? Look back at chapter 1, verse 10. What does it say? His plan was, from the beginning of time, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That's his plan. To bring all things back together where they were in the very beginning, when Adam and Eve were created by God and enjoyed a perfect life with each other, with God, in a perfect world. And ever since that time, sin has brought in death and it's brought in the curse and things haven't been good. And God says, I'm going to redo that. I'm going to reverse the curse. That's why I'm going to save you because it's at the heart of my plan to bring all things back together where they belong under my son, Jesus Christ. Not only is it part of his plan, it's consistent with his character. Look again at verse 4 and 5. What do we know about God's character? Well, it begins with his great love. Why is his love great? Not just because it's big and infinite, but because of the quality of his love. When did he love us, according to verse 5? When we were dead in our transgressions. When, When we were still sinners crossing the line, disregarding his word and his ways, doubting that he's good, rejecting his rule, that's when he did it. Romans 5, 8 says this, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Whoa, that's a big love because that's not how we love. We love if and when people are lovable as defined by you and me. And God's love is great. It meets us when we're still rebels. It's completely unconditional. That means there's nothing you've ever done in your life. Did you hear that? There is nothing you've ever done. There's not anything that you're doing today 
There's nothing that you could ever do in the future that would cause God to say, now wait a minute, now I'm thinking about loving you in a different way. Never happened. His love emanates from himself, and it's great. It's completely unconditional. It has nothing to do with you and I and what we've done or not done. He loves us with a great love. He extends mercy that the scriptures say is rich. It's full. He doesn't give us what we deserve. There's grace that we see here in verse 5. There's kindness in verse 7. The reason God saves us is because it's consistent with his character, his love, his mercy, his grace, his kindness. Does that fit with your ideas about who God is? Or do you just think he's like the, the cosmic cop who's waiting for you to mess up and then, bam, he's going to nail you? It's not the scriptures say here. He's loving He's kind, he's merciful, he's gracious. That's why he saves it's consistent with his character. And then verse 7 tells us not only is it consistent with his character, but it displays the greatness of his grace, of his character. So when we become the recipients of his mercy, guess what we become? The trophies of his grace. So you go to the local high school gym and you see the trophy case of all the great accomplishments that the teams have had, the individuals have had, all pointing back to their accomplishments. Paul says in verse 7, throughout eternity, everybody's going to look at God's kindness, the kindness of his grace that's been expressed to us. We become the trophies of grace for all eternity. That's why he would do it, for the glory of his own name. So every day that Valjean was a free man, all the little steps he took to make a new life and to be a changed man, they all pointed back to the mercy and grace of the kind old priest. That's why he did it. And so the question is then, how is one saved? And this is so important. If you're here this morning trying to figure out what is this thing about Christianity following Jesus, this is the uniqueness of Christianity, that we're saved by grace. What you'll find as you explore the other major religions You start talking to people. You understand that their construct is, how does one get back to God? How does one spend eternity with heaven? It has something to do with the good works that I do that somehow get me to a place where I'm good enough to get in. That's not at all the teaching of Christ. It's by grace. Look at verse 8 and 9. And if you don't have these verses underlined, underline them in your Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, then take the one that we have for you, take it home, and underline it right now. That'll make it yours, okay? All right, verse 8. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this, your salvation, your faith, is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works, he says again, so that no one can boast. There it is in plain English. How are we saved? First of all, how we're not saved. We're not saved in our own efforts. It's not from ourselves, he says. And to make it clear again, it's not by our own works. And he doesn't just say it here. He says it throughout the scriptures, like in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Paul says, he saved us not because of righteous things we've done, not because of good works, but because of his mercy. And what's the problem with our good works? They're not good enough. 
See, God doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't wink at sin. It's a big deal. That's why he sent his only son to die for us. And when you think about your good works, it's important that we think about our good works as the scriptures tell us God thinks about our good works. And here's what the scriptures say. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, we are all infected and pure with sin. When we proudly display our righteous deeds, we find that they are but filthy rags. God says, you think these are good? They smell to me. They smell. Maybe relative to your world, to your friends, it looks good. But in the eyes and the nostrils of a holy God, it doesn't smell good. And so we're not saved by our own efforts. But verse 8 says we're saved by grace. What is that? Grace is, it's a free gift. Unmerited free gift, undeserved free gift. It's not even anything we desire. So let's just say this morning on your way to church, you got pulled over for speeding. Those Cottage Grove cops got you again. They're notorious, aren't they? Those 25 mile an hour speed traps. And there you were going 32. It felt like 25, but you were going 32. The guy pulls you over. He says, I clocked you at 32. Justice means you get what you deserve. 32 means if you got a ticket, that was just. But maybe he noticed that you had uh, some Sunday vests on, and he thought, well, maybe these guys are going to Door Creek Church. Now, you didn't tell them that, I hope. But maybe he thought, maybe they're going to Door Creek Church, so I'm going to give them mercy. I'm not going to give them what they deserve. So he hands you a warning. You're thinking, this is a great day. It's a great day. Then all of a sudden, he does something that you didn't expect. He says, you know, it's a funny thing. I wasn't supposed to work today. In fact, I've got four tickets to the Big Ten final championship game at the United Center. And I'll tell you what, here they are. Here are the tickets. That's grace. That's getting what you don't deserve. You deserved a ticket. You got mercy. You got a warning. And grace is getting four tickets to the championship Big Ten game the Badgers and the Buckeyes. Huh? That's grace. You understand it? You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. It's a free gift. But it's received through faith. You see that? It is by grace you've been saved through faith. Oh, what's that faith? Is it just about believing as hard as you can about something? No. This faith contextually here in chapters 1 and 2 is very clear. Go back to chapter 1, verse 15. What does he praise God for at the beginning of his prayer? He's praising them that he's heard about their faith. And where is it placed? Where is the movement? It's placed in the Lord Jesus. That's why he would say at the beginning of the letter in chapter 1, verse 1, the faithful in Christ Jesus. You see, it is God's free gift given to us that we're saved. And that gift becomes ours as we believe it, that we believe that Jesus died on the cross in our place. That he died so that we wouldn't have to die. That he died that we could be forgiven of our sins and that we could be made alive and experience new life with God today and forever. That's how we're saved. And we're not just saved from something, we're saved to something. And that's good to remember. Back into this relationship, we're made alive to God. 
back in this relationship. The friendship is restored that you and I were created for. We're back in this new life in Christ, a quality of life that changes our living today. And we're saved to a life now, verse 10 tells us, of good works. What does verse 10 say? It says this, for we are God's workmanship. That's the word for masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Not just saved from things, but we're saved to things so that there is this whole new life a life in Christ, a life with God that is shown in a life of good works. What are these good works that God prepared a long time ago for us to do? They're the works of Christ, the works of his great love, the works of his rich mercy, the works of his grace, the works of his kindness that get metered out in all of life. So when you go to work tomorrow, It's time to display the good works that he prepared in advance for you to do. When you walk through your campus tomorrow, you're doing the good works. When you fill out your taxes this month, you're a changed person. You've been saved, not just from something, but to something. And there's a whole new life, a life that's now measured by these good works. We're not saved by good works. We're saved by grace through faith to a life that exhibits good works. And Jesus said this, let your light shine before men in such a way that they might see your good works. And in seeing those, they'd see God and they'd boast, they'd glorify him. And so friends, the text asks us a basic question this morning. Are you dead or are you alive? I mean, when Ephesians 2 is hooked up to your heart, what does the monitor read? Is there a pulse or is it cardiac arrest? You see, there's only two ways to live. How do I move from death to life? By God's grace through faith. Not by working, by grace. On our website, there's a link right under the little box that says welcome. And ask the question, wondering about God. If you click on that link, you'll see another link mentioned there. It says two ways to live. And that is a wonderful presentation of what we've just been talking about. And what I really like about it is it gives you some pictures to hang on to the concepts. And so if you're here this morning, you're going, man, this is all new to me. I want you to listen carefully as we go through two ways to live. Here's how it begins. It begins where the Bible begins in Genesis 1. God is a loving ruler of the world. He made the world, and he made us rulers of the world under him. And so there we are, standing on God's earth. We're to be rulers of his world under him, and God is symbolized by the crown. And the question is, is that the way it is now? As you look around life, is that how people live, living their lives under God's rule? The answer is no. Because what we've done is we've rejected God's rule. There's, that's why there's an X through the crown. We said, thanks, God, I'm going to do it on my own. We've rejected the ruler by trying to run life on our own without him. And the result is we fail. We fail to run our own lives. We fail to rule society well. All you have to do is look at the morning's paper, read the news, examine your own hearts. As I like to say, I can't even balance my own checkbook. What in the world do I think... Who do I think I am to to run the world, to run my own life? 
So the question is, what does God do to those who've committed rebellion? And the answer is, God won't let us rebel forever. God's punishment for rebellion is death and judgment. And so that's it, dead in our sins. That's what it looks like under God's condemnation. That's the picture right there. And his justice seems hard, but we get to verse four, but God. And here's the good news. Because of his love, God sent his son into the world, the man, Jesus Christ. And this man, God's son, Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life. And because of that, he was the perfect sacrifice. He died on the cross to die in our place, to take the punishment, to offer us forgiveness. And there's Jesus, the man who lived perfectly under God's rule, like we were supposed to. But that's not all. The scriptures go on to tell us that after three days, Jesus was raised up from the dead. He was given life again. He ascended up to the right hand of the Father where he rules over all things. Chapter 1, verse 21 tells us he rules over all things. And he's conquered death. And he now offers us life. And he's going to return as judge as he sets up this new kingdom, this new world that we were made for, that we long for. And that leaves us with this question. There's only two ways to live. Which way are you living? There's our way or there's God's new way. Our way is typified by this, rejecting the ruler, running life on our own, and the result is condemned by God, facing death and judgment. The new way, God's new way, is completely different. Here we're submitting to Jesus as our leader, as our ruler. We are trusting and relying on him, on his death and resurrection for us. And the result is we're forgiven by God and we receive new life, eternal life. We're made alive. So which of these represents your life today? Is it A, my way, the crown's on my head? I'm under God's judgment? Or is it B? And if it's not B, Which way represents where you want to be? I can tell you where God wants us all to be this morning. He wants us to be living life in the fullness of life that is ours by God's grace. Be. So how do I get there? How do I move from death to life? Well, it's as simple as talking to God and telling him who you are. He already knows. Lord, I'm a sinner. Broken your laws, your commands. I I need a Savior. And I believe your son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross for my sins. And so I'm putting my trust in him. I'm asking you to change me and help me live for you. There's nothing magic about words. This prayer here might express the prayer of your own heart right now. But it's not about words. It's not about doing anything. It's about your own heart trusting in Christ. It's about your own heart being honest before God and telling him who you are and what you need. And then if you've prayed that prayer, what you do is you start putting it to work. You start putting it to work of saying, okay, I'm serious about living life under your son. He's not a category. He's not like this Sunday morning deal in my life. He's this new relationship that's invaded every nook and cranny of my life. Whatever I think, whatever I do, every relationship I have, he's there. And I want to know what it means to be your follower, Jesus Christ, in all those places. So keep on submitting to him.
And then as you find yourself desiring to submit to him, maybe for the first time in your life, all of a sudden you realize, ugh, I mess up still. And so we got to keep trusting in God's grace, in his son, Jesus Christ, so that we don't now all of a sudden leave grace behind and thinking, oh, shoot, I messed up. God must be angry with me. I better do something good for God now. Now you keep trusting in Jesus. You keep going back to the cross. In a moment, I'm going to close our service in prayer. And if you've never given your life to Christ, I'm going to encourage you to pray this prayer with me right now, quietly, in your own heart. For those of you who've known Christ and you say, man, I've I've slipped a long way from him. I, I might have a beat, but it's a little beat. There's a lot of blockage in my spiritual heart right now. I need a catheterization. I, I, need, I need God to renew my heart and my love for him. I've wandered off. And you ask him to help you as well. Let's pray. Lord, for those who are hearing your word for the first time, or maybe for the 10th time. But for the first time, it's making sense. Who we are without your grace, we're dead. And who we are by your grace, we're made alive. I pray that in hearing this truth, that they would believe it. That they'd receive your grace as they trust in your son. And so I pray even now, Lord, as they pray with me, that you'd hear their prayer. That you'd change their life and that you'd give them new tastes of your goodness, of forgiveness, of life in your son. Dear God, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I need, desperately need your forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen.